Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as U.S. employers continue to reopen their businesses and the economy overall, one of the key questions being asked is, to what degree are employers responsible for maintaining a healthy uh, and safe work environment? To get some answers, we welcome Emma Court. She's a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Emma, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of maybe the, you know, the the, the whole paradigm of what we're seeing as businesses open up, what are they doing to ensure uh, the health and safety of their employees coming back? You know, workplace safety has become, you know, a really kind of new and, and different paradigm today, right, as employers, you know, some of them have been, you know, operating throughout the pandemic. Some of them are starting to push to return to work, you know, for the first time, pushing, you know, maybe smaller cohorts of employees at the beginning. And as part of that, you know, we're seeing a lot of different measures being deployed. We're, you know, we've been talking about temperature screenings for a long time, um, symptom checkers, which means, you know, maybe your employer sends you a list of four questions you have to answer before you come into the office. You know, do you have symptoms, things like that? Have you been in high-risk situations, like a big group of people or, or an event indoors, things like that? Um, you know, masks at work, you know, even physical barriers like plexiglass, for instance. Uh, hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, but interestingly, testing, which has become such a first-line mechanism of ensuring public health in the community, it's, it's sort of our only option absent a vaccine in terms of ensuring this virus doesn't you know, spread really rapidly from person to person. That has actually been a really small element of employers' back-to-work back to pushes. And uh, there are a variety of reasons for that. But a big one is cost and and the sort of crucial limitations of how these tests can be deployed. You can't really test someone and say, okay, you know, you're all clear and, and we don't have to worry about you anymore getting sick. You know, that's, that's not how these tests work. They're, the diagnostic tests that we have right now say, at this moment in time when you were tested, you do not have COVID-19. You know, there's also an issue of false negatives, but mainly there's an issue of what if you leave the testing site and you go into the parking lot and you get sick? You know, that, how helpful is the test then? Um, so these are things employers are really kind of wrestling with as, as they think about whether to have employees at work and what kinds of mechanisms to have in place there. What are employers responsible for and who is regulating that? Is it the unions? Is there anything in federal government suggestions? Yeah, there's there's been a variety of um, recommendations in terms of how to you know return to work. And it sort of depends on where you look. Everyone has sort of a, a booklet of, of recommendations or, or requirements in some cases. You know, local governments, state governments, the CDC has recommendations. Um, you know, EEOC has put out uh, recommendations e even specifically on testing, saying you can use diagnostic testing, but there are other kinds of testing. You can't make a requirement to go back to work. So it depends on your, the industry and, and where you are and, and things like that. Um, and it, it, but it does present the sort of patchwork of requirements and recommendations depending on where you are. And, of course, local conditions factor into this a lot too, right? You know, I'm here in New York where, you know, obviously was a very big hotspot, you know, earlier in, in the pandemic. And now, you know, perhaps more people are returning to work, whereas other parts of the country, the, the situation in terms of COVID-19 is very different. 
So, uh, Emma, to what extent do we know kind of the liability businesses may have from employees saying you're assuming them and because you brought me back into a unsafe work environment? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting and important question and one that's sort of still being figured out right now. I mean, you know, with regards to testing specifically, we've seen, you know, a union that represents employees and casinos in, in Vegas sue uh, certain casinos saying you need to make, you know, testing a part of the return to work strategy. Like this has to be a mandatory part of this of this uh, of this push. Um, but we've also seen, you know, a lot of lawsuits being filed over. I mean, this is something that's probably going to be litigated for a long time. Um, and, and it's unclear, you know, a big question that comes up around that is, can you prove that you got coronavirus, yeah. you got COVID-19 at work? And it's not, it's not clear how well anyone would be able to prove that. I mean, it depends on what the, the bar is, uh, you know, how, how the bar is set at, by court. What will be the test case? Is there a test case out there yet or, or do we have to wait and see for a few more months? I think this is going to take a while to, to settle. You know, many employers, especially large employers that operate in many jurisdictions, are still wrestling with these issues. And, and I think we are also going to see standards evolve and change um, as testing technology gets better, for instance, um, as people set standards for different industries. You know, a lot of employers that operate in places around the country have, have tried to, you know, because they're facing this sort of patchwork of different requirements um, and guidance have tried to make, you know, meet sort of the highest standards, right? Because it's easier if you're operating in multiple jurisdictions. Um, But, you know, the bar may be lower for, you know, small businesses or or other kinds of of, uh, players. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these things shake out and to see if employers become, you know, go out there and say, we are setting the highest possible standards yes. for our workplace, you know, maybe become a, a big incentive for employees to want to work there. Exactly. It's going to be fascinating. I mean, will countries even be suing other countries if uh, travellers brought it in? Our thanks to Emma Court, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. Now let's move to the oil market because we're seeing Saudi Arabia raise prices. We're seeing equities rally and that's all helping oil to stay above $40 a barrel. Somebody watching this and the natural gas markets very closely is Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group. Always thrilled to have Stephen on. Stephen, Saudi is raising prices. Is that a little bit dangerous in terms of the balance when it comes to OPEC? Uh, Absolutely, I think so, Vani. Look, it is the first week of July. Uh, which only means we have about seven more weeks of demand or peak demand left in the season. And in fact, when we look at uh, this market historically, demand will peak by the end of this month, beginning of August. So, uh, so once we get into August, uh, the, this season's peak demand is going to pull off into the exit ramp. And then as, we, of course, we transition into the fall, demand will continue to fall. Now, keep in mind, this is not a, obviously a normal year, and demand is already supremely lagging relative to normal. For instance, here in the United States, 
uh, we should be boiling upwards of uh, well over 17 million barrels a day. Uh, in last week's EI report, we just breached the 14 million barrel a day. So we're accumulating relative to historical norms a significant glut in the market uh, with regard to crude oil, uh, the same situation in gasoline. So uh, with uh, the current situation, uh, given where we are at this point in the, the calendar, uh, we're certainly playing uh, with, a, with a dangerous market at this point. So, Stephen, the, the news we woke to this morning is that Warren Buffett is buying some assets from Dominion Resources, a pipeline business. Is that any way – should that in any way be interpreted as a call that Warren's calling the bottom in natural gas prices? Well, to be honest with you, I, I'm certainly relieved that uh, Mr. Buffett is is making this purchase. Uh, of course, with what we saw last week with Chesapeake and some of the other major bankruptcies we've seen since uh, the market collapsed back in April, uh, certainly the signs were there that we were going to see consolidation in this industry. I don't think Mr. Buffett's uh, purchase is going to be the, the, the last uh, uh, transaction that we see in this market. We're going to see a marketplace that is much sm smaller as uh, companies with, with good acreage, uh, prime assets uh, that are having difficulty uh, will look to bail on this market. So, so clearly uh, what we're looking at here is a, is a market that, you know, primarily natural gas as, as that fuel of the future, uh, certainly giving its stance in the marketplace. That is the thinking man's uh, choice uh, to be had as we look forward. Uh, my only caveat here is, or my concern, I should say, is uh, kind of the, 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 the lurch that we're seeing with, with certain aspects in the government uh, going away or discouraging investment in, in, in hydrocarbons, especially natural gas. Uh, but Mr. Buffett's entry into this market at this juncture, it makes sense. Uh, these assets are being had on the cheap. Obviously, he's Warren Buffett. He knows what he's doing. Uh, and I'm taking it as a relief because my concerns regarding government uh, interference in this market aside, I don't think he'd be making this uh, assumption if that was really something to be concerned about. You know, it goes against tuition, Stephen, not that we should really ever use tuition on anything particular when it comes to the markets, but natural gas producers for the 36th consecutive month have boosted production at these prices. How does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is it is a bit of a head scratcher. A lot of that production, uh, Vani, uh, over uh, as you said over the past three years, has been uh, what's called associated gas production. So that that is gas making its way to the market. That that's not being drilled for. That is to say, this was crude oil uh, uh, that that's being drilled for, and gas deposits associated uh, with the those barrels being pulled out of the ground. That gas is coming up as well, and that is certainly adding to the pool. So I do think we're, we're at that point, uh, for instance, here in Pennsylvania, which is now the epicenter of basically the, the, the global natural gas market, uh, we've seen a significant decline in drilling permits since February. So, and in fact, Appalachian natural gas production, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, specifically, uh, that production has been falling month over month now uh, for about the last seven or eight months. So it's been a slow catch up. I think, Vani, that the, the issue here is is that the gas market is there's a limit engineering wise to yeah. the amount of gas you can actually pull off but now it's a demand side hey Stephen, thanks so much uh, as always for that update on all things energy we always appreciate getting your view Stephen shork president of the shork group in pennsylvania talking about uh 
crude oil globally, natural gas, particularly here in the U.S. Again, Warren Buffett uh, buying uh, the pipeline or certain pipeline assets from Dominion Energy. Well, for many investors in this market, given the volatility, they are simply trying to preserve wealth as best they can. Uh, And that includes some of the ultra wealthy as well. Michael Sonnenfeld, he's a chairman and founder of Tiger 21. And Tiger 21 is really a unique organization. It's a peer membership organization for high net worth uh, wealth creators and preservers. So Michael gets a really interesting viewpoint there from his members. uh, And he joins us now. Michael Sonnenfeld, thanks so much for joining us once again. Again, I guess since the last time we talked to you, we've had just this tremendous uh, pandemic uh, sweep the world, creating a tremendous amount of economic, uh, you know, uh, uncertainty. How are your members viewing the world today and how are they positioning their portfolios? Great. Thanks for having me, Paul. You know, uh, our members have been weathering the storm, and and that's how they think about it. Uh, Our members are primarily, uh, not exclusively, first-generation wealth creators and mostly entrepreneurs, investors, and uh, executives. So these these are the people who've had to create wealth over an entire generation, and they've been through different storms. This is certainly unique, but they've been doing two things. Uh, always looking for opportunities very selectively. It's not business as usual. The way we say it is our window for business is open. Individuals say this. Our window for business is open, but the bar is much higher. But also we've been raising cash uh, because right now everything seems very rosy. It's not just today's ebullient market. Uh, The last couple weeks the market has been coming back. Uh, But members aren't convinced that it's a one-way street. You could have some rough times coming up later this year when PPP runs out. Uh, And uh, obviously the pandemic has hit different businesses quite differently. If you're a retailer, you're thinking very differently than if you're a a tech company that's uh, doing extremely well. Yeah, the PPP reopened today. The new deadline to apply is August 8th, so a few more weeks for people to apply. Michael, any idea how much wealth was destroyed by the pandemic? Well, um, most of our members... Uh, because they have a low exposure to the public markets, only about 21%, uh, are in the around breaking even. You know, if you were a high-tech investor, the NASDAQ is ahead for the year, uh, quite amazingly. So we have members who, if they have well-diversified portfolios, have losses in the single digits. Uh, but just like the average of a man and a horse is three legs, uh, some of our members have done extremely well, and others are learning from them how they were positioned to do so well and thinking about how to uh, uh, be protective on the downside. So it's, it's across the board, but generally, it's uh, probably a break even to just down uh, one or two or three points at this point. So, Michael, it's interesting, the, uh, on the M&A front, just over the last 24 hours, we saw uh, famed value investor Warren Buffett uh, make a $10 billion acquisition of some uh, liquidified natu- some natural gas assets, some pipelines, suggesting to a lot of investors that maybe he sees the bottom in that particular subset of the market. Are your members, are they saying, hey, I'm going to take advantage of uh, this market, uh, you know, uh, uh, meltdown that we've seen, even despite the, 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 the partial comeback we've had, that's maybe as an opportunity to really bottom fish in certain sectors? Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, I think what's made our members uh, a unique cohort is the fact that they can roll up their shirt sleeves and uh, shuck and jive, if you will, to opportunities. 
And so they've, they've kind of had a twist in their portfolio. On the one hand, they've bolstered their cash. Uh, we, uh, we recognize over the last 10 years um, through our asset allocation uh, how members are diversifying their portfolio, and cash has been around 12%. Well, in the last three months, cash has grown to 18%. It's a dramatic change. Uh, call it a flight to safety. But what that really means is members are building resources to pounce on opportunities. I know in uh, 91, when the real estate market was down, uh, I bought a portfolio for 20 cents on the dollar that tripled in value over the next few years. And these kind of opportunities only occur uh, in times like this. So you have to both have the security to know that you can weather the storm but that allows you to be on the lookout for unique opportunities. And I would say that balance, uh, that twist, if you will, more security and working really hard to find opportunities uh, characterizes a good number of our members. Very briefly, Michael, what's the relationship to real estate? How has it changed? 20 seconds. Yeah. Well, real estate is our biggest uh, allocation, about 28% of our assets. And today we have about $80 billion. And I, we don't manage money. It's our members' individual managing over 790 members. Um, real estate is the story of the pandemic. If you're in the retail area or the hotel area, it's uh, you know been a heap of trouble. But industrial real estate uh, has done amazingly well. Uh, and uh, just as you were asking me, pouncing on opportunities, obviously, if you were diversified well, yes. even if you were in the real estate in retail, you hopefully have other assets now, and now there are opportunities to look at. So we have members looking at shopping malls yes. and hotel chains uh, to see where the opportunities are, because there's going to be okay. great opportunities there. Michael, we will check back in with you on that. Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21. Well, we are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and it is time for Bloomberg Opinion at 10.49 on Wall Street. It's time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion columnist, author of a biography of Henry Kissinger, this author of Civilization, the West and the Rest, and of course, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Neil Ferguson is very welcome to the program. Neil, you're the man who coined the word chimerica. And you say in one of your latest columns that you agree with Henry Kissinger that we've seen the opening gambit in a Cold War II, this between the US and China. How did relations between Beijing and Washington sour so badly? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I was uh, one of the people who came up with Chimerica back in 2007, along with Moritz Schulerich, but we always said it wouldn't last. In fact, the word Chimerica was a pun on the word Chimera. Uh, the only question was when things would unravel. I thought it would be around the financial crisis, but that didn't happen. I think the real turning point has been Xi Jinping's increasingly assertive foreign policy. And I see the presidency of Donald Trump as in some measure just a reaction to that because it kind of the penny dropped with ordinary Americans that China was getting most of the benefits of Chimerica. And finally, someone came along from outside the political class and articulated that concern. And that somebody was Donald Trump. All right. So, Neil, from your perspective, what do you think China's strategy is here? Well, I think there's obviously a priority on readying, writing the economic ship. And I think one has to recognize that 
the principal concern for Xi Jinping uh, is actually making sure that the Chinese economy weathers the storm of COVID-19. But meanwhile, I think the subplot is uh, asserting China's uh, power, not only regionally, but globally in a whole range of of different ways, ranging uh, from the One Belt, One Road initiative, which is very much uh, Xi Jinping's uh, brainchild, Uh, to more conventional assertions of power uh, in the South China Sea and with respect to Taiwan, and then fighting the tech war, which which I think is really key here. Sometimes people forget that that, that the tech war over the future of Huawei and its role in global 5G networks is more important than the trade war that Donald Trump launched in early 2018. And I think from a Chinese vantage point, it's a very major concern that right now there's a Damocles sword over Huawei. Uh, in September, uh, the Commerce Department is intending to cut Huawei off from imported semiconductors from companies like Taiwan's TSMC. So there's a whole range of different ways in which this Cold War is being waged. Uh, but I think the key thing is is not to assume that somehow Donald Trump started it. I think it's much more accurate to say that China started it and and Trump was in some ways a reaction to that. And in fact, Neil, what you're saying brings up the question of whether Xi Jinping is actually committed to market reform to the extent that predecessors were. Is he willing to give up some free market developments, if you like, in order to return his community to sort of a more uh, communist community? Well, well, Bonnie, I think it's crucial to realize that Xi Jinping has quite consciously shifted away from policies of economic liberalization and that one of the signatures of, uh, of his time as general secretary of the Communist Party has been an increase in the power of uh, the state-owned enterprises. And uh, also, I think perhaps just as importantly, a real tightening ideologically, which is very obvious uh, in Chinese universities. I'm a visiting professor at Tsinghua, but I've seen the atmosphere change from one of relative openness to one in which people are uh, losing their jobs or or indeed being uh, subjected to arrest for... uh, essentially uh, lecturing on the realities of Chinese history and expressing criticism of the of this new uh, ideological tightening. Uh, I do think there's one qualification, though. One way that the Chinese are trying to counter Trump uh, is by appealing to Wall Street and saying, yeah, we may <laughs> we may be communists, but come on in to our financial markets and we'll make it easier for you to come in. Not to get out, of course, because China still has capital controls. But I think one of the interesting subplots here is the way in which uh, Beijing is pitching to Wall Street. And that's a pitch that's getting quite a warm reception from companies ranging from uh, uh, JP Morgan to the big credit card companies. That's an exception, though. The basic trend is for a reimposition of the party's control and and a shift away from the uh, the, the more liberal era when we used to talk about Ultimately, the the renminbi being a convertible currency, I think that's all forgotten now. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your thoughts on this important and evolving topic. Neil Ferguson, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.